So, first off, let me welcome you to Grace Bible Church. Just welcome to the, to the gathering. So I'm going to make a confession right now. I don't know if it's a confession or if it's, I'm not sure what it is, but I um, was back and forth from my home yesterday, and, and I had done quite a bit of work on my sermon back and forth, and, and even this morning I woke up early and I tidied it up and got it ready. And I got here to church, and I'm, I use a program called Logos, Logos, and, and I, so I got here and popped open my computer like I always do, and it looks like that I only had my updates up until about 2 o'clock yesterday. So, <laughs> so I pray that you will pray for me as I, as I muddle my way through this, I, I hope that... I hope that it isn't too distracting as we, as we go through, but I will do my best to stay on task, and, and we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. As you know, last week, last Sunday, was Mother's Day, and during the week leading up to Mother's Day, the Supreme Court, and I didn't mention this last week because of, because of Mother's Day, but the Supreme Court had an unprecedented, I say unprecedented, I, I don't know of any other examples where this happened. Um, it had, a Supreme Court had a leak concerning an upcoming decision. It just so happens that that leak was about um, Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision that has been used to legalize abortion at, at the federal level. If this is if this is true, if this um, that that this well, this document says that that this that Roe v. Wade may be overturned, and if this is true, the abortion question then will be turned back to back over to each state to decide. Uh, Justice Samuel Alito eloquently wrote in the leaked draft majority opinion. He wrote in that document, and he rightly stated that the Constitution makes no reference to abortion, uh, direct reference, and there's no such right implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. From a Christian worldview perspective, overturning Roe v. Wade would be absolutely monumental. We know that we uh, we know though that. Some states, we know that some states will move to eliminate abortion on demand within their borders, and we hope that Florida will join uh, those states that, that eliminate the possibility of legalized uh, murder of children in the womb. The murder of millions of babies in the womb far exceeds any atrocities that, that have occurred. Uh, you know, 20th century has been known as the bloodiest century. But most people are talking about Hitler and Stalin and, and Mao and those guys that killed millions of people. But the murder of millions of babies around the world in the womb far exceeds any atrocities that occurred in the 20th century. And it didn't start in the 20th century. It didn't start then. I truly hope, I'm truly hopeful that this is, will be a victory for those who value life. Uh, but this matter we have to recognize is a matter of a matter requiring 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 prayer because here's the here's the issue. 
this change, if it happens, now, it, it, I think that the document was leaked because they wanted public pressure on, on those justices that would overturn this decision, uh, the, Roe v. Wade. But what we have to understand is, is that the battle really isn't in the court. The battle isn't in the states either. Where do you think the battle occur, is, is occurring? The true battle is in the heart. The heart of these women who would take and murder their children in the womb. And these men who would encourage them to do so. That's, that's the true battle, and we should never miss that. No matter what happens with Roe v. Wade, we cannot miss that the, that the issue is, the, is an issue of the heart. And it's interesting because, you know, the, uh, uh, I think that the coat hanger is, has become the symbol of this whole thing. I, I think I've seen tattoos of, of coat hangers on people's, on people's neck or whatever, you know, signifying this. It's interesting because that, in a sense, in a twisted way, they, they're right, right? But it's not whether abortion is legal or illegal it ultimately becomes an issue of the heart. Now, I'm against, obviously, legalized abortion. I think that any country that does that is a country that's going, is, is facing judgment. But we have to understand, again, that we have to battle at the, level of, at the level of winning souls for Christ. But as you pray, I think we do need to see this, the, the nature of this spiritual battle. And as you pray, I want to give you some suggestions to guide your prayer. Uh, pray for the Supreme Court. Pray that that institution acts according to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, that's what they're there for. I mean, whether it's Roe v. Wade or whether it's any other issues that have hit that court over the past several decades, pray that they would act according to the Constitution, that they would fulfill their constitutional mandate. I would say pray against these pro-murder justices. I, mean, I Pray against them. But here's what I would say. Pray that they make their absolute best arguments for abortion and that God makes them look foolish. That's what I would pray. That's what I'm praying. Pray for the pro-life justices. Pray that God convicts them to remain steadfast on the question in face of incredible spiritual opposition. And some of them, don't, they, they don't even realize in some cases what, what the, the spiritual opposition is. Speaking of that, pray for Chief Justice John Roberts. According to the leak, according to what's being said, he appears to oppose complete, uh, complete overhaul of Roe v. Wade. Now, it, now what that means is, is he's, he, he wants an incremental stepping into it, is what I understand. Now, if you, you may be more, more up-to-date of what's going on, but, but any, anyway, I would, pray, I would pray that God would convict his heart to make wise choices. Choices that, that glorify Him, the Lord, that is. Pray for the, pray for the church. Pray that we would work to understand the issues. That we would understand and, and recognize the complexity of this matter. We need to be a force. We need to be a force in helping these, these women in, in this position. We need to be a force in helping, uh, helping children be, be brought up and, and, and provide, even providing homes for them. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say that we're against abortion. And this is actually an argument on the other side. 
You guys are against abortion. You want to say it's a sin, but then where are you? Well, I would argue that that's, a, that's an empty argument, but, but we have to take it to heart. As a church, we need to be there for, for, these, for these women, and we need to be there for these, these children. Pray, pray also for the gospel to be heard, and that many would come to repentance. Christ, Christ is the answer. Christ is the answer. Pray for our nation. Pray that we would become a nation that values human life. That we would become a nation that protects human life. Whether it's human life at, in the womb, or whether it's the elderly, or whether it's the, uh, the infirmed, what, uh, mentally uh, disabled, whatever the situation is, that we would protect life. That we would, we would be a nation that values human life. Pray for the states. Pray that this decision will be uh, that, that this decision will put the question back to the states, and pray that each state, including the state of Florida, your representatives need to hear from us and say that we we don't want abortion within these borders. That we they would make the righteous decision. Then pray against the states that we that will embrace the murder of babies. My fear. My fear is that these states will become destinations for parents wanting to kill their babies. That's what my fear is. So California or Oregon, those liberal states, my fear is, is that they would, you know, knowing the sinfulness of man, that, that they would allow even more freedom to kill. You know, that they would allow even, even situations where they kill babies that, you know, we already have partial birth abortions, but I, I don't even want to get into it, but... I can see these states forming support industries to bring women in for this purpose. I can see that happening. I mean, that's the sinfulness of man. That's why I say the battle is not, the, the battle really isn't the Supreme Court, the battle's in the heart. Pray that God would thwart any evil intentions that may, may be for, being formulated even now. Pray for those most affected by this decision, the sweet children in their mother's womb. The sweet children, the sweet children who, who survive. Uh, that we want to, we want to have the opportunity for them to live, and that we would be able as Christians to mentor and care for them. Pray for the mothers. Pray for the fathers. Pray that they will resolve to rear their children and not kill them for a, literally for convenience' sake. I mean, that's what it all boils down to. It's all about convenience. I mean, as as uncomfortable as that may feel. It's all about convenience. It's, it's, it's my life. My, I want to do what I want to do in my life. I want to I be an actress. I want to be, be a career woman. I want to be in business. I, whatever it is, it's convenience. Pray for the women who have, who have already committed this sin. Maybe, some, maybe someone here has been is in that position. Pray for conviction and, and repentance. Pray for conviction and repentance. Um, as we have seen in our current epistle, our current um, study in, in Paul's epistle to Philemon, God shows mercy and he forgives. He forgives. He's a forgiving God. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He forgives iniquity and he forgives transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the, the guilty unpunished. As, as a church, as Grace Bible Church, we need to model forgiveness toward these women. 
There are many, many, many women who carry this burden with them on a daily basis. And we need to be, we need to be those who forgive. Countless lives have been destroyed by, because of this tragic abortion on demand doctrine. One of the things that I added to my sermon, I added to my sermon was a quote by Jeff Durbin. It's actually in your handout because your handout is up to date, funny enough. Um, this tragic question about, um, uh, about abortion, here's how Jeff Durbin addressed it. He's been going around the states working diligently to see these states outlaw abortion. He, write, he writes this, he says, does Christ forgive the sin of abortion? The answer is Christ absolutely and completely forgives the sin of abortion for everyone who turns to him in saving faith. And he says, think about this. If the Christian church proclaims and pastors counsel that women have, who have had abortions can receive forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ, then Christian churches, church, the Christian church must reject and repudiate the message that women who have abortions are victims. You see, victims don't need forgiveness. They are not guilty. And if they are not guilty, there is no need, no sin to forgive. This is why the modern message, message that a woman who has an abortion is herself a victim and bears no guilt cannot, cannot be accepted by, this message cannot be accepted by Christ's church. That message robs the woman of the hope and forgiveness provided in the gospel. It tells her that she doesn't need to receive the forgiveness and peace given by Christ for the sin of abortion. She is not guilty. She doesn't need to repent. Fleeing to Christ for peace in the midst of her shame and guilt isn't necessary. She isn't guilty, they say. She is as much the victim as the baby, they argue. The Christ forgives the guilty, repentant, and believing. This modern message is as, is as much at war with Christ's gospel as any modern cultic counterfeit Christian movement. It removes the hope of the gospel while attempting to placate to the culture and make friendship with the world. It hates women because it lies to them and leaves them in their sin. I'm thankful and hopeful that Roe v. Wade will be overturned, but we cannot miss cannot miss these things. Cannot place our hope in, in a political process. And we must recognize that things may actually get very much worse. Because Roe v. Wade, changing or overturning Roe v. Wade will not change human hearts. We must understand that, that women and men who are dead in their trespasses and sins need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. So, on that note, we've been studying this little letter written by Paul to Philemon. I told you last week that this study has caused me to reflect more deeply on the nature of Christian forgiveness and unity. Church, it is absolutely necessary, it's absolutely critical that we pursue unity and peace, especially as we consider this culture. And we need to be, we need to be a model for forgiveness. And we need to be a model for peace and unity within the body so that people see Christ when they see the church. We're going to be attacked. We're going to be attacked. We have been attacked. We are being attacked. We need to be ready for that attack. And this necessarily means that we must be willing to forgive and to seek 
reconciliation when we have been wronged by others. Yet, as I said last week, unity and peace don't come at the expense of the truth. The, the only way we can truly be unified is around the truth of God's Word. We can't, we can't capitulate on the truth. We have to continue to proclaim the truth because that is the only way that we can have peace. And forgiveness doesn't come at the expense of reconciliation either. In other words, as I, as I said last week, true forgiveness always results in reconciliation. If you've, thought about it, if you've thought about forgiveness at any depth, you probably recognize the, the complexity of the matter. I mean, it's, it's a very complex issue. It has been said that the command to forgive is one of the most controversial in the Bible. And I think that's true. In some places, it seems that we are called to forgive without question. First uh, Peter 4, 8, we love covers a multitude of, sin, of sins. Uh, in Matthew 6, we said this last week, that uh, Christ said, if, or if you forgive others of their tra- for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Again, we asked these questions last week, and I, I will ask them again. Do these texts teach that I'm to ignore wrongs committed? Am I to just completely ignore as if those things didn't happen and just forgive? Are we to, are do we, are we to forgive unconditionally even when one, the one who has sinned against us has, has not repented? In other places, it's, it seems that there's a, a, transa- a transaction that must occur to achieve this forgiveness. It says in, in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Are, are we to then withhold forgiveness unless, unless we're asked to, be, to, to forgive? Uh, how do I avoid, if I withhold that forgiveness, how do I avoid a bitterness and honor God's command to forgive? Well, this, the answer to these questions lies in an understanding of what the Bible says about, teaches about forgiveness. And I hope to give you these answers. Now, today, we're going to take a, we're going to take a, a little bit of a tangent. Uh, I need to, again, not only do I need to forgive for my notes, <laughs> you to forgive me for my notes, but well, I need, to, I need you to forgive me also for uh, the A.B. team especially because we're not going to get into our outline today. Yesterday I realized that we just needed to spend quite a bit of time unpacking uh, this idea of forgiveness. So we're going to take some time today and we're going to look and consider the biblical answers to these questions. So with that, let me pray and then we'll jump into, into our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again and pray that you just be with me this morning as I preach. Lord, I pray that, that you would give me, truly give me the words you want me to, to preach this morning. Pray that you would help, guide me, you would guide me, that Lord, you would give me what you want these dear people to hear. That I would preach your truth. Father, we know that the truth of your word will do its work. We pray that it would do just that according to your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I was going to read Philemon this morning, but I think we'll skip that. Okay. Well, in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, Chris Bronze tells the story of, of a man named Chris Carrier. Chris Carrier grew up in Coral Gables, Florida in the 70s, and on December 20th, 1974, while in fifth grade, Chris's bus dropped him off near 
his home on the last day before Christmas break. As he was walking the final stretch home, he was approached by a man who called himself Chuck. He said he was friends with Chris's dad and asked him if he would like to help with a special party for his dad. Chris readily accepted and rode with Chuck to a a motorhome. A 1996 New York Times story titled Forgiven and Befriended by Victim, Attacker Dies gives the following details of his story. After luring Chris into this motorhome, Chuck stabbed him with with an ice pick. Chris Bronze, the the author of uh, the book Unpacking Forgiveness, adds that Chris Carrier had been a regular church attender. And as he was being stabbed, he cried out, Father, forgive him because he doesn't know what he is doing. After this, Chuck drove him to a a desolate spot where he shot the boy in the head from behind. An extensive search followed with a $10,000 reward. Chris lay unconscious for six total days. He woke the day after Christmas and was rescued by a farmer who was driving by. The side of his head was bloody. He had two black eyes. He had light stab wounds in the chest and cigarette burns. A bullet had entered at the left temple and exited at the right temple, injuring the optic nerve and closing the eye. He would, in fact, be blind for the rest of his life. Later, Chris speculated that the burns, some of which still scar him, were meant to test whether he was dead or not. He remembered very little about those six days. He said, it was more traumatic for me, uh, for my parents, that is, and my brother. Uh, It was a walk in the park for me. It happened so fast. From the beginning of the investigation, David McAllister was a prime suspect. He had been dismissed by his dad, by Chris Carrier's dad, six months before, because he had not taken care of, the elderly, of his elderly uncle very well. Mr. McAllister had a long criminal record. He, was, he had owned or did own a motorhome, and he bore an uncanny resemblance to a composite sketch made by or made from the boy's recollections. The problem was that there was no physical evidence linking Mr. McAllister to the crime. The police were sure that he was the assailant, and, and when they went to question him in 1975, he beha- behaved as though he was expecting the police to find him and charge him for the crime. He said to the investigators, what, what took you so long? I've been expecting you. Everything was there, the motive, the motorhome, the composite picture, almost identical, but, every, but all that they didn't have was Chris identifying him as the one who did it. Therefore, David McAllister got away scot-free. Got away with the crime. In the words of Chris Bronze, even though Chris was scarred emotionally and physically, and despite his attacker going unpunished, Chris's attitude was gracious from the very beginning. His attitude uh, was gracious even throughout the ensuing years. When, he, when people asked Chris whether he would speak to, the person, to this person personally, he said absolutely he would jump at the chance. As it turned out, the Lord did give him an opportunity to meet his attacker. Over 20 years later, an officer who worked on the case called Chris, Chris, and he, he said that David McAllister was dying in a nursing home and had confessed to the crime. He asked if Chris would like to meet him, and Chris jumped at the chance as he said he would. At the bedside, Chris held David's hand and told him that he forgave him. As Chris left that evening, he told David to get a good night's rest. 
David McAllister responded, I will now. According to Chris Bronze, again the author of Unpacking Forgiveness, that was not the end of Chris's relationship with David McAllister. Reconciliation followed. He continued to visit him in the nursing home. He even took his daughters to meet him. He shared the gospel, and David McAllister professed faith in Christ. David told a CNN reporter that Chris Carrier was the best friend he ever had. Now, as we consider this incredible story, we must answer the question, what is forgiveness? And for those who have offended others, is it just saying, I'm sorry, or I apologize, and receiving a response of, it's okay, no worries. For the offended, are you supposed to forgive and forget even when you're not asked? Now, I have found Chris Bronze to be incredibly helpful in, de- in developing this definition of biblical forgiveness. Now, Chris Bronze gives uh, a few aspects. I, I had six. Uh, if you look at your, at your handout, you'll see six in my notes. There are only five of them, but that's okay. We'll just try to muddle our way through these. He gives uh, uh, several, let us say that way, several aspects of God's forgiveness. The pattern of forgiveness, the price of forgiveness, the picture of forgiveness, the provision of forgiveness, and the principle of forgiveness. Let's look at the Let's look at the pattern of God's forgiveness. Now, Chris Bronze ties our, forgi- our forgiveness of others to God's forgiveness of us. And I think he's right. I think that that is the biblical understanding of forgiveness, and I hope to show you that, that in, as we go forward. God expects us, as believers, he expects us to forgive others in the same way he forgave us. That is, then, that we should define Uh, forgiveness between ourselves and other people the way that God defined it in forgiving us. Now, Jesus stresses this type of forgiveness in Matthew 6.12. In Matthew 6.12, it says, And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, Paul reiterates this truth in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. In Colossians 3.13, he says that we are to bear with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So the question is, how does God forgive us? Well, the Bible teaches that God gave the first man, Adam, responsibility over his creation. And Adam then followed his wife by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had said, do not eat from. And in doing so, he disobeyed, uh, God's, he disobeyed God, destroying his relationship with him. Both his, his relationship uh, and, and Eve's relationship and, and ultimately the rest of humanity. Now, God had warned Adam that in the day that he ate from that tree, that the penalty for that was death. The penalty for sin was death. Physical and spiritual death. Now, the Bible teaches then that sin's ultimate The ultimate penalty (coughs) is God's wrath. And what we have to understand is that penalty must be paid. That penalty must be paid. God will forgive. God will forgive us. But we must recognize that forgiveness is not free. It's a key point. But the question is, what is the price of forgiveness? What is the price of that forgiveness? And, And who pays that penalty? That's, that's the question. Now, there are two possibilities. There are two possibilities. 
Either, either we pay our, that penalty on our good works, or it's paid by God's grace. There, that's the two possibilities. And the Bible teaches that, that we cannot find favor through our good works. There's nothing that we can do there's nothing that we can do to receive forgiveness based on our good works. We cannot do enough good works uh, to satisfy the justice of a holy God. The Bible teaches we're saved by grace through faith. Our salvation rests entirely on the unmerited, that's, that's, that's key, unmerited favor of God. Forgiveness is a gift, then, that, that, that God graciously offers. He graciously offers it. Now, we must understand that God offers salvation as a gift, but again, that gift is not free. That gift isn't free. You see, God purchased it at an infinitely high price. The, the price of forgiveness, then, is the shed blood of Christ. That's the price of, the, of this forgiveness. In 1 John 4.10, it said, And this is love, that not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, Leon Morris defines propitiation as the turning away of wrath by an offering. The only way that we can be forgiven is for Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin. That's the only way. That's the only way. He, he provided that offering. We could not. Now this gives us the, the picture of forgiveness. The picture of forgiveness. That Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, perfectly righteous, willingly suffered the wrath of His Father on the cross. He did this so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul proclaims that God, God who who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That reconciliation occurred by, by pouring out his wrath against sin upon his own only begotten son, his perfect son. Again, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I quote this verse often, often because it's so important. He made him who knew no sin, uh, the perfect Lamb of God, Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, he made him who knew no sin. He was not sinful. He didn't become sinful. He, he, didn't, he, he, did, there, he didn't have anything to do with sin. But he became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the great exchange. The picture of forgiveness then is the cross. The cross. By God's grace, through faith, God saves the sinner. And while grace is is free, forgiveness became, came at an infinitely high price, paid in full by God Himself. And it's that transaction that gives us the picture of that of forgiveness. The question is, how do we actually receive forgiveness for our sins? This leads us to the provision of forgiveness. The provision of forgiveness. In the words of Chris Bronze, Motivated by love, God offers forgiveness graciously. He, God wraps the present of, present of forgiveness and gives it to anyone who will accept the gift. This gift was purchased by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God offers the 
present of forgiveness to all people. But the question is, does this mean that God forgives all people? And the answer is absolutely not. We received the gift of forgiveness from God by turning to Christ in saving faith. Uh, We turn away from trusting in self. We come to realize that we cannot save ourselves. We, we, We can never be good enough. As I said earlier, you can never do enough good works. You can never be good enough to measure up to the righteousness required to please God, to satisfy His justice. In other words, we repent. We turn away from sin and self. We we turn to Christ and trust Him alone for salvation. But we have to understand that Christ is the key to this transaction. We, We must... We must turn to Christ. We must trust Christ, the work of Christ on our behalf. Even the act of turning from sin is an act of self-reliance if we don't turn to Christ. If Jesus is not part of that equation, if we just clean up ourselves and we try to come to Christ uh, based on uh, how clean we are, uh, that's not going to work. It's all about Christ. And that, that act of repentance is, is an act of faith. Trusting that what Christ has for us is much better than what we had a, can have on our own. We turn to Him and we trust Him alone. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in, the, in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds we, you were healed. So salvation then comes by repentance and faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul summarized his ministry in this way in Acts 20.20. He said, solemnly testifying testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the key. God forgives those who repent and believe in our Lord Jesus. In other words, there's a transaction. God stands ready to forgive. God has provided the way. He has paid the price of forgiveness. He has done the work, but we believe by faith. That's the transaction. It's repentance and faith. That's the transaction that must occur. He doesn't just save us that way, in that sense. The Greek word for forgiveness means to release from legal or moral obligation or consequence. When God forgives the sinner, He promises that He will no longer hold that sin against them. The sinner is declared righteous being justified. Jesus took our sin upon Himself. He paid the penalty and His righteousness is credited to us forever. Forever. Nothing can change that transaction. If that transaction has has occurred, nothing can change it. You are, you are justified. You are justified. Rome, Romans 5.1, Paul says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That leads us to the product of forgiveness. The product of forgiveness. In the words of Chris Brauns, forgiveness lays the groundwork for reconciliation. We can't 
miss this. We can't miss this. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just the release of guilt. It's, it's a, the goal is reconciliation. God forgives us and reconciles to us so that we may have a relationship with Him. You see, sin separated us from God because He is holy and cannot look upon sin with favor. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1.13, he says to God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. I mean, that is the God that we serve. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, we, we said it earlier uh, that, that Isaiah was undone because of God's holiness. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people with unclean lips. I, I'm undone. When God forgives us, He doesn't simply eliminate the guilt. Yes, we are declared righteous, but he also begins a new relationship with us. Therefore, forgiveness is is very, very, very linked, if you will. It it cannot be broken. Uh, The link cannot be broken between forgiveness and reconciliation. As such, God doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just declare us righteous. These truths pave the way for reconciliation with him. When God justifies us by faith, we are reconciled with Him. Yet this doesn't mean that all sin's consequences are removed. For the unbelieving, sin's consequence is to suffer God's eternal wrath and hell forever. That's for the unbeliever. For the, for the believer, what we have to understand that God disciplines us for the purpose of punish, not for the purpose of punishing us. He disciplines us for the purpose of training us for righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, He disciplines us for our good. And this is amazing. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. He disciplines disciplines us so that we may share His holiness. His holiness. All, he goes on to say all discipline is for the moment. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Again, in the words of Chris Bronze, if you are a believer, the purpose of God's discipline is not to inflict upon you the punishment you deserve. If that were the case, then God would send you to hell. God disciplines His children so that they will understand the seriousness of sin and will be increasingly conformed to the image of His Son. Now, Chris Bronze again, Unpacking Forgiveness. I I recommend this book. It's really, really good. Uh, Very, very helpful. He sums up God's forgiveness with the following definition. He says, a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to Him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. Now, that's an important definition, and I, and I think you'll see why in a moment. This leads us to the principle of forgiveness. The principle of forgiveness. So, at this point, we've talked about God's forgiveness of us. So now we need to tie, to, to tie God's forgiveness 
of us to forgiving others who have wronged us. Put simply, God expects us, I would argue, God expects us to apply the principle of His forgiveness when we have conflict with others. As such, His forgiveness serves as a blueprint for our forgiveness. Now, we're not God. We don't, we don't forgive sins in that sense. But I think it's helpful for us to, to understand that this is how we are to forgive. Now, I think that, that Matthew 18 is helpful. So turn, turn there in your Bibles. Again, we're not getting to Philemon today, so it's okay. We'll live. Just means that there's going to be a couple more weeks in Philemon. It's okay. We'll figure it out. Let me set the context in Matthew 18. Really, I'm going to be focused on 21 through 35, but I need to set the context, so I want you to look at Matthew 18:15. Jesus says. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, all in all, this is a straightforward expl- explanation for how to deal with sin in the congregation. The hope of this text is that there would be repentance and reconciliation. The idea is, is that your brother sins, and you see that, and you go to your brother, and you say, brother, this is something that it looks like you're in sin here. And the hope would be the brother would say, would either clarify and say, you're mistaken. I mean, that could happen. Or the brother would say, yeah, you're right. That is sin. And your hope is that there would be repentance and that there would be reconciliation at that point. But then if that doesn't happen, then you are to take two or one or more with you, one or, one or two more with you, so that, the, but that they, but the witness would confirm every fact. And if, they refuse, if, he, if, they, if that person refuses to listen to them, then ultimately you tell it to the church. Now, we have to understand, this is a, this is a process. And, and that process may be, look a little different depending on the situation, but these are the general ways this goes. Ultimately, you put them out of the church if they won't repent, because we can't have sin in the camp. That's the whole point. But, all, but what we have to understand, the key here is reconciliation. We want to see repentance uh, we want to see reconciliation, and as we've discussed, forgiveness is, the, is key to that process. Now look at Matthew 18, 21. Here we find that Peter has done some thinking. You know, Peter's thought about this. And he asked a, a critical question. He, it says in Matthew 18, 21, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, Peter, I think what he's thinking is, is how do I know they're truly repentant? I mean, if they come and they say they're repentant, and then they do the same thing again, uh, how do I know they're repentant? And then they do it again, they do it again, they do it again. How often am I, am I to be the fool, right? 
I mean, so it's a legitimate question, and I think we've all asked that question before. Now, the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis of, of that time, taught that someone should be forgiven no more than three times. So three times, and that, that was it. Now, I'm sure that, that, that Peter figured that Christ or Jesus would, say, Jesus would say something more than that. So he throws out seven. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, ultimately, Jesus calls us to, for us to forgive continually. Uh, it, that's, not, that's the point. It's, it's not that there's a limit, but that we are, are, to, are to continually uh, forgive we, if our brother or sister sins against us. And then Jesus gives a parable to explain this command. Look at your text again in verse 23. It says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one, owed him, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, what we have to understand is, is that 10,000 talents would be like saying this guy owed him a bazillion dollars. I mean, this guy, it, 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 was, it was an almost unfathomable amount of money that this guy owed. He, he could never repay it in his lifetime. That's the point. Back at verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. Now, again, we have to understand the hopelessness of the situation. The, the master wanted to recoup some of what, he, what, he, what this man owed, and so he was going to sell them, sell them off so that he could get some of that back. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't have paid the amount and he couldn't stop this from happening. Keep going in verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now that wasn't, uh, there's no way. There's no way. And, and, and this master knew that. And it says the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now, as you, can, as you can see, that is an amazing picture of forgiveness. Now, this slave owed more than he could ever repay, yet his master showed mercy and forgave his, uh, his debt. It should remind you of what we just talked about in God's forgiveness of us. You have a debt that you could never repay, yet Christ paid that debt. Now let's look at his shocking, shocking response. Look at verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him and saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slaves fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Now what we have to understand is a hundred denarii would have been about three months wages. A significant amount. And it would have been incredibly difficult to repay, but nothing like the amount formerly owed by the slave. So the fellow slave also begged for patience and mercy. Look at verse 30. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he could pay back or should pay back what, he, what was owed. Now that's a shocking response considering the forgiveness shown toward him. He had been mercifully treated by his master, yet he was... He was pardoned and forgiven, yet he was unwilling to forgive. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. His fellow slaves were offended. They were offended. 
I mean, they saw what justice, they saw this injustice. They saw it as an injustice. They saw the hypocrisy of the matter. You have to understand the hypocrisy of the matter. That it was hypocritical for him to do this. Look at verse 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So the master exacted the punishment due because of this wicked slave's lack of forgiveness. Then in Matthew 18.35, Jesus gives the overarching principle. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. If our brother or sister repents and asks for forgiveness, then God expects us to forgive them just as we have been forgiven by him. That's the principle. He has forgiven us an infinite debt that we could never repay. He he has paid our debt at an infinite price. The blood of His only begotten Son. He has forgiven us. He has reconciled us to Himself. Therefore, He expects us to forgive others readily. And as believers, if we refuse to forgive, He will discipline us until we do. He will discipline us until we do. He will hand us over to the torturers. It's like this parable. Our lack of forgiveness, and I want you to get this, our lack of forgiveness may even indicate that we are not truly in Christ. That we ourselves have not been forgiven. My prayer is that you would take these, these things to heart when conflict comes. Now, I think I need to answer one further question. The question is, are we to forgive when the offending party does not repent and ask for forgiveness? The answer is a qualified, qualified no. No. We are not to grant forgiveness without repentance. See, God does not forgive us unless we repent and ask. Yet He readily grants forgiveness when we do repent and ask. Therefore, we are to follow His pattern. Now, we're not God again. We're not God. But we are to follow this pattern. Now, you may ask, How am I to avoid bitterness then? Well, here's the key. Just like God freely offers forgiveness to us, you, as the offended party, must stand ready and willing to forgive, and you are to seek forgiveness. To seek to forgive, that is. In other words, when you are wronged, when you are wronged, forgiveness should be at the tip of your tongue. Therefore, 
I would say it this way. We have a, on our, in our kitchen above the entry to our master, we have a cultivate joy is what my wife wrote. Well, I think we need to cultivate forgiveness. Cultivate forgiveness. Cultivate forgiveness in your heart. You see, you can't actually forgive and be reconciled without the other's repentance. It doesn't work that way. But you can put it in the hands of our glorious Lord Jesus who died for, for your sins. You know how much you've been forgiven. You should be clamoring to forgive this other person. Literally clamoring to do so. Tripping over yourself to do so. I think this is at the heart of Christ's words in Matthew 6.12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And also in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, uh, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father who will not forgive your transgressions. When, uh, look, when someone comes and asks for your forgiveness, uh, it should be, it, you should be so quick to do so. You, you listen to that Chris Braun story and the fact that he was willing to sit and hold this man's hand Because he had cultivated forgiveness in his heart. He was ready to forgive. Now, in applying the principle of God's forgiveness, Chris Bronze again gives us a help, helpful definition for human forgiveness. It's a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. I'll say that again. A commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. It's a, it's a commitment. It's a commitment. You have to be committed to it. You have to live ready to commit to, ready to, to forgive. It's a, it's a commitment to, to pardon graciously. Now, the person is, is saying the repentant. You're willing, you're, you stand ready to, to you are committed to, to graciously uh, pardon uh, from moral liability from what they've done against you or what they've done and be reconciled to that person. You are committed uh, to forgive and to build a relationship with them in spite of the problems, in spite of the sin. Not forgetting, I'm not, not acting as if it never happened in the sense that, that there are still consequences at times. The relationship may never be exactly the same. The murderer still has to go and, and serve time in prison, as an example. Husbands who cheat on their wives still need to build trust with one another. I mean, that's, those things happen, but, but that forgiveness is, is uh, that person who has been offended is ready to, to pardon and ready to move forward and build that relationship and be reconciled. interesting. One reporter, I think it's in your handout, said that 
said that um, David McAllister, who had attacked Chris Carrier, said that he was a dirty scrap of a man, or a, I forget what it said exactly. Boy, I wish I had my, all my notes. He's a weak, weak scrap of, a, of humanity or something to that effect. Let me just sum this up. We are all dirty little scraps of humanity. We all deserve the wrath of, of God because of what we've done, because of our sin. God has graciously forgiven. If you have asked for forgiveness, if you have, if you have been repentant and turned from your sins and turned to a holy God and turned to Him in saving faith, you have been forgiven and you have been reconciled to Him. And He's working through that process of reconciliation as He uses discipline in your life. But you are undeserving. And the sooner we get that through our minds, the sooner we understand how undeserving we really are, uh, how undeserving, how deserving we are of His wrath, the sooner we understand that we're all little dirty scraps of humanity that deserve nothing. Yet God has made us sons. He has graciously invited us to His table. If we truly get that, if somebody wrongs us, it's nothing, absolutely nothing compared to what God has done in forgiving us. My prayer would be If you're here today and you don't know him, the, the guilt of your sin weighs you down. You face condemnation. You desperately need forgiveness. You need to be reconciled to your creator. You can't forgive because you haven't been forgiven. You don't know how. Even today, I pray that you would call out, that you would turn from your sin, that you would turn from trusting uh, your self-reliance, from trusting self, that you would turn, that you would uh, understand that all your good works are filthy rags, that you would turn to Christ and saving faith, that you would uh, experience even now, right now, sitting here today, that you would experience forgiveness and reconciliation. I pray that if you're here today and you have bitterness toward if you're a believer and you have bitterness toward someone I pray that you would consider these things consider what God has done in Christ for you and that you would turn to him that you would trust in him and that you would understand that you need to be a forgiving, you need to have a forgiving heart, that you would cultivate that forgiveness in your heart, and that you would seek that. Seek that reconciliation. As we, next week, we'll return to Philemon.
Paul gives Philemon the opportunity. <laughs> an opportunity on a silver platter. An opportunity on a silver platter to be reconciled to Onesimus. And to be a picture of that reconciliation between God and man. And I trust that as we consider that story, that we may not know every detail of that story. We may not know why they came to that, arrived to that situation. But I trust that in, in eternity, when we were with Christ for eternity, that we will, we will celebrate every detail of that story. And that we will see what truly happened. And that we will celebrate what Christ has done. And that story and, and Chris Carrier's story and David McAllister's story and a myriad of others as we worship Christ forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. This, thank you for this opportunity. Father, may my words not be out of pride but out of, self, out of reliance on you and you alone. May I, as a husband and a father, as a fellow Christian, may I be a forgiving person, stand, standing ready to forgive, cultivating forgiveness in my heart, being ready at the tip of my tongue to forgive. May I seek forgiveness when I have wronged. Lord, I pray for each and every person here that we would be a forgiving church. We would be forgiving individuals and that as we gather together that we would be constantly seeking ways to be reconciled to one another. That we would have just a unity that transcends this world. Unity of the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.